Hi, everybody. It's great to be with you. My name is Carl Palinkas. As they mentioned, I'm from up north in Florence, Oregon. It's called Church on the Rock, and I like to make it clear that it's just one rock because I don't want people to think our church is on the rocks because it's doing really good. And <laughs> but um, yes, I have known Richard and Christy for a long time, and uh, you know, I know that my wife was in the room when Julie gave, wait a second, my wife's Julie, my, uh, when, <laughs> when Christy gave birth to the, the first two, I think. Do you guys remember anything about this? No? <laughs> but uh, you don't remember seeing Julie there that day? But, uh, but anyway, uh, I also traveled with them to Israel, which is really a ridiculous thing to do um, in the sense that, you know, I go to, uh, before COVID, I was going to Israel a lot, and, uh, you know, sometimes two times at the most, maybe three times a year, you know, and um, when, you know, people ask me, how many times have you been to Israel? I'm like, I don't know, you know. Uh, but when Richard and Christy meet to go to Israel with them, I just thought, well, that's such a, What, what do you think I am, you know, I mean, just, you know, that I could just pick up and leave, that I could just, you know, I mean, I didn't say that, but you know how it is, you say nice pastoral things, but you think very fleshly, small, selfish things, and, um, and, and I, but, but there's just something about Richard and Christy and the family, it's like my heart changed so quickly, and I was like, I'm going, you know, and I got to be kind of like their, you know, bodyguard and food taster and their guide and stuff like that, and and we had just a hoot, just a great, great, great time. And uh, I got, I picked him up at the airport. I didn't have a sign that said Applet, did I? I should have. I should have dressed like a chauffeur next time, okay? But, um, but I, I'm really blessed, and I'm blessed to be here today, blessed by the Applets, blessed to be with you. I'm refreshed to be with you and to see and behold the joy and the order and the, the love, obviously. And uh, it's really great to get out of uh, my town, you know, because the coast is so to totally different up there. But uh, anyway, we're going to get in the word, but I'm just very, very happy to be with you all and to, to, be, to see the Ablets, even though they're going through such a hard time. Well, let's get in the word now. Would you, would you grab your Bibles and would you go... Uh, to John chapter 10. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit and, and may all our ears be just so open, so open, Father, and may our hearts be soft for you, for your will, for your plans, your goals, your desires, Lord. We bless your great name. There is none like you. There is no one like you. In Jesus' name, we love you, Lord. We bless you. In your name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, look in, starting in uh, John chapter 10, verse 22, it says, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch, just to kind of give you some kind of visual, some idea Imagine a massive, say like 400 yards approximately. I've just been on the Temple Mount many times, but, but they, this doesn't exist anymore. But just these massive columns, say 40, 50, 60, they're just very, very tall columns arranged in beautiful order and in a big kind of a horseshoe shaped. And they would gather there there would be a shade covering for people that would come and bring offerings. And that Jesus taught there, the apostles taught there in the book of Acts. Um, uh, and, and then, of course, you had the outer court, the inner court, the temple. But there was this massive, massive, beautiful temple that was one of the wonders of the ancient world, okay? Now, the temple, super, super significant. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers there. Jesus entered it, entered into the temple area, uh, the day that he rode the, the donkey into Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, right? And um, he, that was the place where, where Jesus said that it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but 
those guys had made it a den of thieves. The temple is tremendously, hugely significant, okay? And the Bible says that you and I are a temple for the Holy Spirit, a temple for God to dwell, right? Okay? We're his temple, very literally, not just metaphorically, you know, but he indwells us, and because we're a vessel, he lives inside us when we became born again. But Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So I just, I can't wait. You know how a lot of us have the idea that we're going to go to heaven and watch all the videos of all the biblical events that we've ever wanted? There's just going to be this massive library and <laughs> Red Sea Crossing, you know, uh, you know, the wheels in Ezekiel chapter one, you know, all these great, great events, you know, the walls of Jericho. And, and I, I see this, I want to see this. Jesus is walking. It's winter. In Jerusalem, it snows. It gets cold, very, very cold. And there, you know, it's, whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up because it's in the mountains. But it gets very cold. So Jesus and his disciples, they wouldn't have been wearing their, their kind of normal, uh, trudge around Galilee, light robes, you know, they would have had that, they would have pulled from their, their winter wardrobe, if you would. And so, so there's large robes on everybody, Jesus and the guys, but then the religious leaders, they would have had rich robes. You know, these, the, these Pharisees and, and Sanhedrin guys, and you know, just elaborate hats, maybe with fur accents, because it's winter you know, and these big robes. So when they kind of like get in front of Jesus and the guys and they cut him off, there's the, uh, just remember the scene, they're in Solomon's porch, tremendous columns going off in several directions. There's the temple there. It's cold. There would have been the, the, the you know, like, what, what is it exactly? Is it steam when, it, when we, when we, it, it, when it's cold out, right? So everybody's got that going on. But they surround Jesus, and they, you know, they surround him. They stop him. And if, how long do you keep us in doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Just the scene. It's very intense. It's confrontational. But here, Jesus answered them, I told you. <laughs> I already told you. I did say. I'm not keeping anybody in doubt. I told you, and you do not believe. That shows, Jesus proves again, it's choice. There's the will, your will, my will, it's involved. I did tell you, I've done so many things. I spoke very clearly. I did tell you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And I also told you that, <laughs> as I said to you. But you do not believe, you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I told you, you don't believe. My sheep hear my voice. This is like one of the greatest bonuses of being a child of God, is to hear the Lord's voice. Don't you remember and don't you cherish every time that you could say that you heard the Lord's voice? I sought the Lord and he heard my cry, you know. He heard my cry. He answered me. I heard him in my heart. I got this peace. Sometimes, rarely, once in a while, somebody could say, you know, I, I was so clear, it's like I heard the Lord's voice audibly. I mean, that's, for me, that's not common, you know. Only like, you know, like five times a day. No, I wish. But, but I love hearing the Lord's voice. I love knowing his will. And I'm super glad that I can be called his sheep. And he's my shepherd, right? But there's this other thing that kind of pops out that stands out to me about this little passage here. 
And that is just Jesus just immediately kind of just opens up this little world about his relationship with his father. Of course, he was always doing that, wasn't he? Always opening up the relationship like between him and his father and then pulling you or inviting you or saying something about that that makes you want to, can I, can, I can I be a part of that? <laughs> I, I, I'm really enamored with my own kids. Uh, I'm, I'm very enamored with the, with the Ablett kids. They're, you know, quality. And um, we had a lot of fun in Israel. There were so many times when, you know, I was driving this little sporty car that I rented because, you know, I wanted to be like the cool uncle, you know. And Richard and Christy, they just got like this big, the biggest SUV I've ever seen in Israel. And, and I'm just like, I, how, how, that won't fit in so many streets and never find a place to park. But, but there were a lot of times when I'd be like, okay, guys, you follow me, okay? And then I'd be like, this is Israel. You know, you got to forget about defensive driving. You got to think offensive, okay? And come on, Richard, keep up. And then I'd just go, and I'd be like, oh, no, where are they? And then I noticed towards the second half of the trip, a lot, sometimes the kids were traveling with me. And I was like, cool, okay, we're going to be the cool car. But anyway, we just had a lot of fun, a lot of food, a lot of laughs. But, um, but I became very enamored, of course, of the Ablett kids even more. And, um, and I just drew on so many times when I had my kids in Israel. I'm very, very, usually parents are pretty crazy about their kids. Um, but I'm so proud of my son Joseph up north. He's leading worship this morning at Church on the Rock. He, um, he's just been like a right arm. He's just been so, so wonderful. And I've got a son in, just moved to Wisconsin with his wife and two kids. I've got a daughter that's married up in, up in Beaverton. We have the, a little adopted girl from, in, from India. Her name's Surali. Totally crazy about these guys. But, but there's something about the relationship, about Jesus and his father. It's like all of this relationship stuff and the love we have for our kids. It's, it's Jesus does something there that makes it, gives all of this stuff so much meaning, so much enhancement. Jesus basically says, my father is awesome and so powerful. If you are in my father's hand, no one can take you out of my father's hand. Look what he says. Uh, my father who has given it to me is greater than all. My father is the greatest. He's greater than all. I, you know, I'm prejudiced about my kids. I think my kids are the greatest. I don't know if they think I'm the greatest all the time, but I don't think my kids would ever go to their friends and go, my father is greater than all. <laughs> uh, I'd be like, whoa, really? So, but Jesus says that about his father. My father is greater than all. And the father, the more you read the word, you understand, you see, the father is always pointing to his son, and he's basically saying in so many ways throughout the Old and the New Testament, my son is greater than all. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that my son is, is God, is Savior, is the Lord. And there's this, this, this beautiful relationship. Jesus is like, my father is greater than all. And, and the father is like, my son is the most important person in history. He's the one you need to know. Kiss the son, Psalm 2, lest he be angry when his wrath is kindled but a little. He is the king that I will set on my holy hill of Zion. Now, all of these are, are, to me, wonderful devotional thoughts that pull me into Jesus being surrounded, the steam on the breath, the swishing in the flowing robes, the confrontational Jews, Jesus saying, I did tell you. I did tell you that I am the Christ. But what stands out to me this morning you might not know it. You might look at your calendar, look at your phone. But today is the fourth day. Does anybody know what I'm about to say? Of? Of? What? Nope. Hanukkah. It's the fourth day of Hanukkah. You did say Hanukkah. I know. <laughs> fourth day of Hanukkah. 
And um, I, we don't exactly, you know, light the candles at my house. We're not Hanukkah observers. We're not necessarily Jewish feast day people. I think that maybe sometimes we could be. Sometimes those could be fun. I'm just not religious about it, I guess. <laughs> but um, today's the fourth day of Hanukkah. I want to clue you in a little bit about what Hanukkah is uh, but, and that Jesus was observing it. Remember, Hanukkah is not really a biblical feast. You know, there's Passover, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Booths, there's these other, there's these events, uh, Sukkot, where uh, the Israelites were required by law to go up to Jerusalem several times a year to observe certain feasts. But, but Hanukkah is not really one of them. This is what happened. Um, after Alexander the Great passed away, the empire, going back to Alexander now, was divided in, into like three or four different areas under his, under his generals. And, you know, skipping a lot of the, the uh, details there, um, there were these guys in Egypt called the Ptolemies, and there were these guys in, in ruling out of Syria that were called the Seleucids. And around 180 BC, there were these different really bad pagan maniacal, tyrannical, cruel leaders ruling out of Syria. And all of this was prophesied and detailed in the book of Zechariah, just with amazing accuracy, okay? Very, sp very specific. But there was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and, and what he did was he went down and he, um, I think he defeated the Ptolemies in Egypt. Okay, but on his way back, he he enforced his rule over Jerusalem, and this is the guy that put a, an altar and a, and a statue of Zeus in the temple. He desecrated the holy temple, okay, in Jerusalem, uh, with pigs' blood and sacrifices of pigs. This this would be just mind-bendingly unthinkable for, for Jewish people at the time, okay? And he was enforcing Greek ways, Hellenism, okay? Greek language, Greek dress, Greek, Greek diet, Greek stuff. And what he did was, in his, in his self-deifying sickness, he put an image of himself. He required people to offer sacrifices, even pig sacrifices, before his image in the temple in Jerusalem. The absolutely abominable, foul, just evil. And then he told the Jewish people, you can't study the word. You can't study Torah. If you study Torah, the, the penalty is death. You can't do all of these things that were basically Judaistic. You can't do them, and the penalty, they would burn them alive, they would execute them, they would do all these things. There was a group of mothers at the time that insisted on, on having their, their sons or their kids circumcised, and, and, and these mothers were thrown off um, this big uh, high point uh, outside the temple. They were just executed in that way, and people were not allowed to study the Bible, which is huge to the Jewish people, okay? So um, around that time, because of the pressure, because of the persecution, a lot of Jews, even within the priesthood, started compromising. They started just saying, oh, we got to do it. You know, it's, it's the rules. It's the law. And, and, and a, a group of priests came up that uh, said, you know what, I'll, I'll make the sacrifice. I'll, I'll do the, the pig sacrifice. And, the, you know, we'll just got to do it. We've got to appease them. We've got to go with the flow, you know. And a guy came on the scene, Matiyahu. We would say Matthew, but he was the first of, of the Maccabees. And uh, if you should ever grab a Catholic Bible, there's stories about it in, this, in these extra biblical books called the First and Second Maccabees. Um, but Matiyahu was so zealous and so offended that his fellow priests would compromise in this way. Um, he just killed these compromising priests. And then 
that attracted other zealous priests and other zealous Jews, and it turned into a guerrilla war. And between 167 BC to 164, this war just, it, it just, the Jewish movement just snowballed and snowballed until finally, let me, let me read to you the army that uh, the bad guys brought onto the field. I've got it right here. There it is. Give me my glasses. Okay. So, Antiochus brought his army to an area called Daphne, which is just near Antioch, which I'm sure rings a bell for everybody. But he had his army of 46,000 foot soldiers, 20,000 Macedonian phalanx guys. You know, those are the guys that link shields and all stick their spears out together. And um, 500 mercenaries equipped with Roman arms, followed by 8,500 horsemen. And, you know, as I read this list, you're thinking, well, it sounds like, you know, a basic ancient army to me. But to top it all off, 306 armored elephants. So that's the army that was coming against Israel. And the Jews defeated that army. And, you know, they, they, were, they were crying out to God. They were zealous. They, 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 they were so offended at the, at, the, at the foulness that the enemy had brought against God's name and against his, against his temple. And, uh, you know, because they thought that, that God's name dwelt in the temple, like Solomon prayed, like others prayed, you know, regarding the temple. Um, his name dwells there. And they were very, very zealous for God's name. And it was just an absolute miracle that they defeated this massive um, world power. But once again, there's just a very, very powerful visual when you think of 306 armored elephants, you know. So I say all these things because t uh, today being, I think, I think it's the fourth day of Hanukkah, um, they light these candles in something that looks like a menorah. It's not a menorah, you know, it's, but it looks like a menorah. It's the same kind of size and shape, but there's some, there's some significant differences. With a menorah, you have seven branches across the top, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and, and that is the thing that, um, you know, if we have a menorah, it's, 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 a, it's a mini version of what they would have in the holy place in the temple, okay? And they would trim the wicks, and it was very special. It was one of the, the articles of sacred furniture in the temple, okay? And interesting that there are two guys that were very responsible for the uh, design and execution of the furniture in the temple, or originally in the tabernacle, going back to the days of Moses. Their names, if you remember, Aholiab and Bezalel, okay? Bezalel, Aholiab, but um, in their attempts to make a full-size menorah for, say, like the future temple, they were very, very, very challenged because this is all supposed to be solid gold, but they're supposed to be empty tubes where the wicks go through and pull from a, a central reservoir and pull oil up through the wicks so that you could light on a very, very large menorah, light the wicks. But because of the weight of the gold, it, 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 would, it, did, it lacked the structural strength, it lacked the integrity because the, the gold was so weighty, it would just sag and break. But then finally they figured out some kind of some kind of design, some kind of form where that where where they if they just shaped it a certain way, it would give itself strength to bear up those massive arms and and feed the feed the wicks, feed feed with the oil, and it would be able to uh, sustain its own weight and it would light up, you know. So so this is the challenge that they had. So they had that challenge in trying to figure out what the ancients pulled off, right? But the Bible gives the answer about how they could do that. It says that the Lord gave these two guys, Aholiab and Bezalel, he gave them a special gifting of the Holy Spirit to be able to pull it off, okay? Now, I say that because that speaks to you and to me because for us to do what God wants us to do, we cannot figure it out. We need a special gifting, an unctioning, an ability, a supernatural energizing 
of the Holy Spirit for us to be mini lights, mini menorahs, mini, mini presentations, you know, like, like Jesus said, you are the light of the world, right? So, but that's with the seven-branched lampstand, okay? Very different. That's called the menorah. But this other thing that looks like a menorah, it's called a Hanukkiah. And a Hanukkiah has a total of nine, okay? And this is what really pulls me in about Jesus. Remember, Jesus is there. He's observing. He's participating in Hanukkah, okay? He's attending this extra-biblical, non-biblical feast, and he's using it powerfully, awesomely, like he does all, everything. But with the Hanukkah, there's eight candle holders, and then there's a ninth, there's another candle holder that is supposed to be a little elevated, a little kind of, it could be off to the side, it could be in the back, it could be in the middle, but it, that, that, that ninth candle, that extra one, has a very interesting I just think the Lord set it up to point to himself. That it is designated as the shamash or the servant candle. It's called the servant candle. So of course, what happened was going back, I know I'm jumping all over the place. I'm just a little excited, had a really good coffee, okay? And, uh, but I'm really glad to be here and blessed in so many ways. But, but when the Maccabees defeated the Jews back in 164 BC, the temple was desecrated. They had a lot of cleaning to do. They had scrubbing. They had to re-sanctify. They had to make everything kosher, kosher again, okay? So they had to do all that. They had a lot of work to do. But then to light the seven-branched candlestick, you know, the menorah in the temple, they found that there was only one container of sanctified oil. It, had, it was, had to be approved by the priest. It had to be uh, created by the priest. It, it was a, a special mixture for the temple to light the wicks in the menorah. And they found that they only had one day's supply. And the story goes that the Lord supernaturally stretched out that one day's supply and turned it into eight days, which was the amount of times for the sanctification of a batch of oil. So the Lord miraculously, as the story goes, took that one-day supply and made it miraculously last eight days. And that's why you have the eight days of Hanukkah. And uh, you're supposed to put those in the window. You're supposed to um, light a candle each night for each of the days. But every time you light a candle to commemorate the victory, to commemorate God stepping in, to commemorate how God saved them, how, God, how God's name is holy, you always would draw your light from that single servant candle. I've done ministry many, many places. I've tried so hard studied, learned languages, traveled, dug out canoes, obscure languages that nobody will ever speak besides the people that live there, and a lot of money, a lot of time away. And on many and many occasion, I did it in my own strength and in my own flesh. And now I'm just learning again and again and again that if there's anything good, anything that could bring warmth or illumination, any contribution, it's got to be Jesus. I've got to take my little light and get it from the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ. He is that servant candle. For you or for me, the same is true. Jesus is the ultimate light of the world. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you shall not dwell in darkness. You'll have the light of life, right? We can't have the Christian life without Jesus. He is the one. I must take my light 
from the servant candle. I must take my power, my sufficiency, I, anything that, that I need for life, for ministry, for husbanding, for fathering, for, for anything. I must do it. I must get it. It must be Jesus lighting me if I'm to shine the way for anyone else, anytime, anywhere. So I see it, say all these things because I am just filled with admiration about the way Jesus moves. I want to point out some things just from our text very quickly, very briefly again. If you look back in John chapter 10, I, I uh, very quickly blasted out some of these observations a few minutes ago. But look at this. The Jews surrounded him and said, how long do you keep us in doubt? Jesus does not keep you in doubt. Jesus said, I told you. I told you and you do not believe. As I look back in history, as I watch any biblical movie, okay, as I watch the Ten Commandments, as I look, as I look at a, a, a movie about the Gospels or whatever, I want to align myself with the cool guys that were full of faith, that were standing along Jesus saying, I'm with you, Jesus, standing alongside Moses or whatever biblical character. I'm on this side. I'm on the winning side, full of faith in God, speaking and acting and behaving like a man full of faith, you know. But the fact is, that might not have been my, my spot where I really would have been in, in history. I might have been with those complaining, Moses, you brought us into the wilderness to die. What? We couldn't get killed in Egypt? You had to bring us here to get us killed. Our lives are full of ups and downs, disappointments and heartbreaks. If a lot of those things hasn't happened to you, I'm really glad. And I don't want them to ever, ever, ever come your way. But the fact is, the fact is they're just really, 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 sadly, unfortunately, just a part of life. And I want to be one of those. I want to be transformed into one of those because on many occasions, I was the guy. You've brought us into the wilderness to die. Or here's a, some loaves and fishes, but what are they among so many, you know? And just all, just not seeing the full picture, not believing, not understanding just how great God is, but I'm learning, and I'm learning again. And I want to encourage you, and I want to ask you to accept this in a greater way today because Jesus Christ He's told you there are so many things. He has not left you in doubt. At a, a church on the Rock up in Florence, uh, last Sunday morning, I, I taught on the Church of Sardis in the book of Revelation, right? It's church of Sardis? Yes, Revelation chapter 3. And a guy came up to me, one of the services, I can't remember, and... Uh, and he started talking to me about somebody that was walking around Oregon and cleaning up along the side of the road. And this guy, he's a, he's a precious brother. He's a friend. But, wow, would you look at that. I'm glad I don't have to go to my car right now. But there was this admiration for, and it's okay, somebody that wanted to kind of pick up beautify, basically kind of like a save the planet type of thing. It's hard to, to, to hold up, you know, things like recycling when you're, when you're starting to study the tribulation period, when the oceans are turned to blood and, and uh, you know, or, or I, I'm into neatness. You know, I don't throw my, my wrappers out the window. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm against pollution in general, um, <laughs> unless it's really convenient for me. No, but... Um, Politics, 
who's going to be in charge, who's going to have the power in Washington, so many of these things. I know who I want. I know what I would like to see happen. But the fact is, the Lord has not left us in doubt about what's coming, about what the, about what the future holds. Things are going to get wild. We're going to go, at some point, we're going to go to heaven in the rapture. We're going to be taken. Things are going to happen on this planet Earth. There is going to be the Antichrist. There's going to be the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Where there's going to be so many heavy things coming down on this planet. And, but we're going to be in heaven. And then Jesus Christ comes back in power and in glory in Revelation chapter 19. And there's going to be the millennium. There's going to be the binding of Satan temporarily. There's going to be the great white throne. And then there's going to be a new heavens and there's going to be a new earth. And there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain. The former things will have passed away. Man, God tells us, he says in Revelation chapter 1, that his father gave him this specific revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations, right? Some people say, hey, turn to the book of Revelations. But you could do that with palm. Wait a second. I was going to say you could do that with Psalms, but I almost called it palms by accident. <laughs> so <laughs> turn with me to the book of palms. So. Somebody said something like that recently. Who was that guy? But in the, this revelation, Jesus said that he gave it to show to his servants. And I want to be a good servant. I want to be a faithful servant. For me or for you to be a good servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to stay close and keep our eyes fixed and get our light from the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ. Because he really doesn't keep us in doubt. My life, I experience a lot of doubt. I experience a lot of, you know, just trials and stuff like that. But um, I'm pressed. I'm hard pressed. But I know it's pressing me closer to Jesus. So Jesus said, I told you and you don't believe they said, how long will you keep us in doubt? Jesus does not keep us in doubt. If you have a shortage of faith, go to the word, and the Lord will speak to that. He will, you've got to find the spot. You've got to find the verse. But he does not keep you in doubt. Okay, number two, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Rest in the fact that you are owned, that you belong that he possesses you, that he's got you, and he purchased you. He paid for you. Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul the Apostle is talking to the elders, and he says, you guys, you guys really need to take heed to the flock. You guys really need to look out for and, and keep watch over the church, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. The people, you, me, the church on the Rockians, um, all of us, we don't belong to anyone else, even ourselves. You do not belong to yourself. You are not your own person. Jesus paid for you. You belong to him. Man, if you're bummed, if you're stressed out, if you're having a hard time with finances or relationship or, or sorrowful memories or anxiety about the future, tell yourself very profoundly, rally yourself, speak to yourself, talk to yourself like David did. David, the shepherd guy, he sees the sheep. When a sheep is laying on its back, its circulation gets all messed up. If it lays down in a hole, if it rolls over the wrong way, they call it being cast down in shepherd's terms. Jesus knew, ex uh, I'm sorry, David knew exactly what he was talking about. He's talking to his own soul. He says, why are you like that, O my soul? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Ditto for you. Tell yourself, you are owned. You are his sheep. 
you belong to him. It is, I am so glad if I fail, if I mess up, if I'm feeling like a fool, if I feel like a failure, you know what? I belong to him. I'm going to heaven. And every so often, either in devotions or on the radio or, or in some way, I, I hear his voice. What a privilege to hear his voice, to read the word, to listen to worship music and go, I'm connected. I'm his sheep. I hear his voice. Number three, I told you, you didn't believe. You don't believe. You're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Number, verse 28, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. A few years ago, about five of my most revered and esteemed friends going back for decades, like right at the time I became a Christian back in 79, you know, 79? How old are you? I'm very old. But some of the most respected and revered, including my closest and dearest friend, this was a few years ago, five of them all went to be with the Lord. Just every couple of months, that one went to be with the Lord. And these guys, only one of them, I think, was, was old, you know, actually, you know, just older. And, you know, but the rest of them were just, it was all a surprise. And Jesus gave me, and he gave, and he gave you, and he gave Mary and Martha this promise. He says, if you believe in, in me, even if you die, yet shall you live. He, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And here Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Our bodies may break down. Our bodies may fail. We may fold up this earthly tent like Paul described, and, and, and we might depart, but we shall never perish. No matter what happens or this world brings or whatever may happen in a, to America or with America, we shall never lose eternally. We have a home waiting for us in heaven. We shall never perish. And then he says in verse 29, no, no, not verse 29, verse 30. I and my Father are one. <sighs> I could say that about my wife, you know, we're married, we're one. I could say that about, say, some of my sons, you know, regarding the things that we have in common. We're, we're on the same page about cer certain things, but none of us are exactly the same person, right? I want them to be more like me, and I think that they should, and that everybody should. But um, you know how it is. They say about marriage, the two become one, and then you spend 20 or 30 years arguing which one, you know? But, but Jesus could say more than anyone else to in a degree and in a way that he and his father are one. In the book of Isaiah, I love that verse Andrew read in the songs and the quotations from Isaiah today. Just, you know what, you know what really gets me when I visit a church is when somebody teaches or somebody reads and, and it just kind of pumps me up. It makes me want to go read and study where they read from, you know. It makes me want to go, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to, I want to see, I want to read that. I haven't read that book in a long time. I want to read that book. So, but in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44, there are several references where God says of himself that he is, he is the first and the last, okay? Multiple references there in, the, in that chunk of Isaiah where God says that he is the first and the last. And Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1 and in chapter 22, he says he is the first and the last, He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, okay? Jesus, is, Jesus really is God. And it's something that I celebrate and I cherish. I'm just so glad that I know 
every once in a blue moon, I meet a Christian that wants to have a little private talk with me and say, I, you know, love this and I love that and, you know, and it's kind of a buttering type of beginning to the conversation and I love it when they butter me, you know, when they say, oh, your teaching was this, the best. And I go, yeah, it was good, you know, and, but um, that's a joke. So, but, but then they go, but I still, the verdict's still out for me being about Jesus being God. And, you know, I've, I've heard this mm, a few times and I kind of can see it coming and I go, oh, it's important. Oh, it's, it's true. He really is, you know, and it's very, very important. The father does not want you to be confused or, or lingering or waiting to decide because a lot of times people think you need to convince me lay out your case theologically pile up the verses stack them in a specific way where i can finally say okay fine all right i guess jesus is it's still a choice but jesus is god even the name that god gave him in the book of isaiah im with anu us el god god is with us and man i love the fact that god is with us and that jesus jesus said if you've seen me what have you seen the father if you've seen me you've seen the father i and the father are one let me just pull up a few verses down here uh, verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father, for which, <laughs> he knows what he's doing, for which of those works? Was it healing this guy? Was it healing that guy? Was it doing this? Was it opening that blind guy's eyes? Which one are you stoning me for? Many good works. Do, which one do you stone me? And the Jews answered, says, none of that. For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then Jesus makes a case regarding this specific use that could be translated as, as gods or judges from the Old Testament. He says the scripture can't be broken, but, and, and, if, and if that says that about people, have, have, um, is it not written in the law, I said you are gods? And then Jesus says, regarding the one that the Father sent into the world, you say now that I'm blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. I revel, I am glad, I rejoice in really worshiping Jesus as God. This is something that I just get excited about thinking about because God became a man. That's just crazy. There's nothing, there's, there, there, you, you, there's no step down that any of us could experience. Like if I were to become an ant. Anybody know the story of Bruchko? Okay, he's a famous missionary. Back when I was just going crazy for everything missions, um, we were reading all the missionary books uh, through, through Gates of Splendor, Like a Mighty Wind, um, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Anybody familiar with any of these guys? But Bruchko, this guy named Bruce Olson, he became a missionary. He wanted to be reach these, these Indians. I believe they were called the Motolones in some country in Central America, but they were famous for killing any outsiders. You know, another one of those tribes, you know, that just... You show up, we kill you. It's just life. It's actually, it's death, but it's, but it's just the way it is, the way it's always going to be. And, and miraculously, they did not kill him. Instead, they threw him inside a grass hut, and they shot blunt arrows through the walls of the hut and just you know, gave him all these blunt arrow marks all over his body. And then, and then miraculously, miraculously, they just didn't kill him, and, and they just kind of kept him around and he learned their language. But he was struggling over this point about the incarnation. 
but it just so happened that in their myths and legends, there was a story about a man who was trying to communicate with the ant kingdom and he couldn't do it and he was experiencing all this frustration and finally did something, I don't know what he did, but he became an ant so that he could reach the ants. And they had a one word for that. He was trying to translate the Bible, trying to give them the, the Bible in their language and tell them the stories, but there was no word that he could find for incarnation. And then he took the Modaloni word for man became an ant and used it for the incarnation. And that's kind of cool. The Lord embedded that in their culture way before Bruce Olson came on the scene, Bruchko came on the scene. The Lord had that prepped in them. But the fact is, you know it and I know it, the word falls so far short. If you and I were to become an ant, wouldn't be that big a step down. <laughs> but for God to become a man, the Holy One, the King of Kings, the Pantocrator, the Emperor of all time and space, the Creator of time and space, the Holy One of, of from everlasting to everlasting, man, he became a little tiny baby born in the manger. Wow, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Amazing. And he did that for you and for me. God did that. Man, if God would do that for you, you got to know he's going to keep on taking care of you. He'll keep on stepping down, touching you, helping you, meeting you, providing for you, being good to you, preparing a place for you. He's done so much. So all that to say, Hanukkah, it's the fourth day. Jesus is the light of the world. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? I'm not keeping anyone in suspense. <laughs> I'm not the one holding out information, Jesus says. And this is a, this is a to me, this is a, it's an exciting Christmas message. An exciting Christmas message. Would you turn to one final verse? I don't know how long I've been teaching. Um, I hope no one's keeping track, and I hope it doesn't feel really long. But um, would you turn to Psalm 132? The rabbis have a saying, I'm not always all, I don't teach always about Jewish stuff. I just do it when I'm here, I guess. But uh, the rabbis have a couple sayings that I think are very cool. They have thousands of sayings that are really worthless, okay? So I'm not just enamored and, you know, it's not like, oh, if it's Jewish, it must be cool. But two sayings that are worth remembering. Well, number one is, all the writings were not written save of the Messiah. That's interesting. In other words, you read through the Old Testament and, and they're saying, somewhere, somehow, God is always pointing to the Messiah. God wants you to know about the Messiah. So all the writings were not written, and then the second one is very much like it, all the prophets did not prophesy save of the Messiah. So those, this, those have been of benefit to me, those things. So here in this Psalm 132, I'll just read through it, and then I'll pause on the parts. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Most of you probably realize that this is, David is thinking about the temple. He's thinking about, you know what? 
I shouldn't be just living comfortably in my own palace, and the Lord still is in that tabernacle, that, you know, the pop-upable, breakdownable, you know, uh, tabernacle. The goal is to build a temple for the Lord. And then, of course, you know that the Lord speaks to them and speaks to David and says, you're not going to be the one Solomon's going to do it, right? You all know this stuff. So, But here, David, I believe the saying, like the rabbis, all the prophets did not prophesy, all the writings were not written. It's really about the Messiah. So David is saying, I'm not going to rest. I want to find a place for Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, yod ha vav I want to find a way for the Lord. I want to find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place. And then verse 6, Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. I might be crazy. Chances are decent. But I believe... This speaks of the shepherds. Ephratah is Bethlehem. They said, let's go, let's go see his tabernacle. In John chapter 1, it says the word became flesh, and we see, we see the word dwelt, but the word is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And maybe you know that the word tabernacled, when Jesus dwelt among us, when Jesus tabernacled among us, it's a Greek word. The Greek word is skene, but it's grayicized from the Hebrew word, who knows it? Shekinah. And I love this about Jesus because the Holy One stepped down. He tabernacled among us. The Shekinah came in the tabernacle of a little baby for you and for me. And I think of the shepherds saying, let's go, because that's exactly what they said in Luke 2. They said, let's go. Let's go check it out. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship and footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. That's become us. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your Moshiach. It says Messiah, your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. See, this also leads me to believe it's about the incarnation. And if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has de desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. This verse 17, I think of Hanukkah. I think of Jesus observing it, the feast of dedication, the feast of lights, drawing my light, my light drawing, lighting my candle from his servant candle. Right here it says, I will prepare a lamp for my Messiah. So very simply, I'll just close with this, and that is I pray that you really find a special personal way between you and Jesus to pull your light, the light that you need from him. Would you pray with me right now? Because the Lord knows what you need. He knows what you've been through, and he knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows the things that are heavy on your heart, the front burner things. He knows any and every anxiety just better and more beautifully and thoroughly. And he says, he guarantees, he promises, you will not.
perish. He's going to bless you. He's going to prosper you. He's going to take care of you. He'll never let you go. I believe that the struggles of this life are God's ways, yes, preparing us for eternity, but it's about getting our power and our light from him in whatever it is that we're going through, whatever our need may be.